Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. On this episode, we welcome Michael Thamaya and Laurie Forte, director and producer respectively of Ice Age Collision Course. So hello again, everyone. This is Ben Mitchell, and here with me is Wesley Allard. Hello, everybody. Uh, Steve has disappeared. I'm not sure what's going on. I'm going to assume he's been ensnared by Pokemon Go, because that's been uh, consuming everyone of late. Wes, actually, has been part of the podcast since the early days, I would say. That's right, yes. Uh, Wes did the original uh, ragtime piano theme we had when we started about uh, four years ago. Some of you remember that the episodes back then used to be uh, far less frequent uh, and much longer. They were kind of mini podcast epics. So between segments, we'd have these little uh, cues to indicate a new discussion topic. Really, it was just that we'd run out of steam <laughs> on one like conversation or the other. Like, you know what we've said or we can say about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? <laughs> and then new subject. Uh, it's great. It's a great tool for podcasts if you ever want to uh, go into that kind of line of work. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I think we do occasionally bring those out if we hit like a conversational brick wall. But as well as being a composer, you're a pretty avid animation enthusiast, are you not? Oh, absolutely, yeah, for many years, Ben, many years. And, uh, yeah, ever since uh, studying how many years ago it was now, a long time ago, uh, with Steve uh, Sunderland, uh, yeah, I've been, uh, well, even before then, been an avid enthusiast ever since, and, uh, yeah, can't get enough of it, and it's, um, it's great to be a, be a part of it, even from a, you know, from a sound perspective, so, uh, yeah. Do you ever still uh, dabble in the visual side of things? Um, well, I still I still draw and um, I I have done I have done and uh, yes every time I see an animation or go to an animation festival, all I want to do is make a film and uh, you know I think when I when I have time I will and one day Ben I will make a short film. <laughs> you can hold me to that. Whether it will be any good or not, uh, we'll let people decide. But yes, uh, I certainly uh, will will animate again at some point. You remain plugged into the animation world certainly. Um, you were at Annecy this year with us. Yes, yes, fantastic, absolutely brilliant. Apart from the weather, but it doesn't affect watching the films when you're indoors. It's just great to meet so many people, talk to people, uh, talk about the films, discuss the films, meet new people, meet up with people from from the UK who you only see at Annecy, which is <laughs> which is quite quite scary. I love when it's people like from your own town. Yeah, like people that you know just live in Bristol <laughs> or you know like. <laughs> I never talked to these people any other time, but then we were in Captain Marvel. Hey, how you doing? Absolutely. I know. It's going to go back to not talking to this person again for another year. I'll see you in Annecy next year. Yes, yes. I know we live down the road from here. Um, but yeah, it's, it's quite surreal. Um, but it's, it's nice. It's, um, yeah, it's, I think that's a part of the magic of Annecy, definitely. We didn't really get to sort of fully um, convey... I think beyond the uh, the live broadcast, which you were also a part of. Yeah. Oh, yes. If anyone has yet to see it on Facebook, <laughs> uh, scroll down and you can uh, check it out. Wes, uh, Wes plays us out. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather brilliantly, I thought Wes um, and several others um, are kind of the informal musical entertainment, I suppose, of Annecy at parties and gatherings and stuff. People kind of get together and jam, and Wes. Um, was it a melodica? What's the name of the uh, instrument? A, a melodica. Yes. It is. Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, one of those little, like, one-handed pianos that you blow into. Uh, uh, so it's like a harmonica keyboard type thing. Bought it in Annecy, actually, many years ago. Ah. Uh, so there you go. So there you go. It's d- deep-rooted in the festival. But uh, you know, you're able to, to work out how to play the closing theme with one hand in about 30 seconds. 
which yeah, I was pretty impressed yes. by. Yeah, that was a bit bit, bit nerve-wracking, but I, I, I think it came across okay. I thought it was great. I <laughs> so, love that. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. But yeah, I mean, yeah, so I mean, um, the, talking about the, the informal music, uh, famous composer Nick Phelps, who's uh, done a lot for the animation world for many years, um, he brought his clarinet this year and... Uh, we were joined by uh, many other people from all different countries and uh, we just got together and jammed and played a few animation songs at a few parties and it's, it's magical. It's just everyone, everyone's having a great time, you know, and uh, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. As far as the uh, the animation events and whatnot, what were your sort of particular highlights for Annecy this year? Uh, it's hard to say. I, did, I didn't see as much as I wanted to this year, I'm sorry to say. In terms of the uh, uh, sort of feature films, um, I would say the highlight for me was uh, My Life as Courgette, um, mm-hmm. which I believe obviously you saw as well. And uh, I thought, oh, absolutely fantastic film on every level. I mean, you, you, couldn't, uh, you couldn't fault it. Um, it was uh, narratively it's a fantastic story. It embraces you in sort of every, every level of your emotions and it takes you on such a fantastic journey and uh, you feel so fulfilled at the end. And it came away with two of the major awards, the Audience Award and the uh, mm. Cristal, which uh, was probably the least surprising outcome. Like certain festivals, there's a kind of buzz around films, most editions, and sometimes it's kind of an arbitrary buzz. Like sometimes people will just say, oh, yeah, 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 this is what everyone's talking about, mm-hmm. without actually talking about it themselves or having much to say about it themselves. But with my life as a courgette, everyone was coming out of those screenings and rushing to tell everyone else, if you haven't seen this film or you haven't scheduled uh, a screening of this film, try and get to see it. Yes. Yeah, it really was something special, and I, I'm I'm curious to see how it does internationally if it makes it over here. I'd... Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. I think what I liked is when uh, when the credits started rolling, everyone stood up and just mm-hmm. applauded uh, for yeah. all the credits. And uh, I mean, that's um, you, you, you only get um, you only get an atmosphere like that in, in animated film festivals for animated film and in mm-hmm. Annecy, um, it's 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 brilliant um, to see an audience reaction like that. And I think yeah, I think like I might be one of those people who was um, probably annoying everybody, saying go to see this film if you haven't done. Are you what are you? Oh, you're going to see that? Oh no, cancel that. Yeah, you go, <laughs> you go and see this. It's much better. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, really excited by that film, and uh, yeah, I'm sure it will continue to do very well. Mm. Absolutely. Have you seen much of uh, Claude's other work? No, no, I haven't. I haven't. I know at least so. you can see some of it on uh, the NFB website. He did some stuff with the National Film Board of Canada. Yes, okay. it's definitely worth checking out. And he's done some stuff uh, uh, in his home country as well. Um, certainly, it sort of sows the seeds uh, from a visual perspective of like the mm-hmm. design and, and animation work that you know really sort of shone through in Courgette. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, we will be hearing uh, well. We. Alas, we probably won't be hearing from uh, Claude because he doesn't really speak English. It's one of those sort of yeah. tricky things, like with uh, Jan Svankmeyer doesn't really speak. So probably they won't be on the podcast, but they'll be hopefully on the site. Like we got a yeah, thing yeah. organized with Jan a month or so ago, and uh, hopefully we're going to get something sort of similar. So we'll hear a bit more from him, or certainly members of the team behind the film uh, in the yes. coming uh, weeks or months. So that's something to look forward to. Next to my life is a courgette, the sort of very palpable reaction to the Red Turtle um, mm. at the festival, which unfortunately not as many people could have seen. It was more kind of a, an opening ceremony film. And in a way, I mean, it's nice that they did something special for the opening ceremony, but it would have been nicer if more people had been able to talk about it during the week because it really was quite exceptional. Yeah, um, yes. But one thing that kind of drove me a bit nuts, and I uh, I went to the John Cruz for Lucy presentation uh, later in the week, 
so he was he was kind of as is sort of his way um he was kind of bashing <laughs> the industry and how at one point he actually says you know there have been no significant animation progressions in the last 30 years <laughs> which was met with these sort of murmuring as of what did he hit his head mm. and he's like oh, yes there's cg but you know yeah i mean i mean okay i mean i mean everyone's going to interpret things differently and have different different ideas of what they like you know what they what they think is good and what they think is bad and what what they relate to and what they can't for, for example i mean I, I i'm not really a fan of of motion capture especially when you can clearly see that it just doesn't look right, and obviously, as you know, with motion capture, you could you you could tweak. I mean, I mean, my, my only experience of motion capture is using mocap with Maya many years ago, and I'm sure it's moved on a lot since then. But you know, if you take a, a walk cycle for motion capture, you can then embellish that with your own abilities as an animator, and you can enhance it and you know bring the life back into it. And um, but I think yeah, that's 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 my opinion. Um, I mean. I mean, some people might say motion capture is an animation anyway, but I, I would um, be surprised to hear that there's been no advances in the last 30 years in the world of animation. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> It fell on perturbed ears. Yeah. I do sort of agree in a lot of respects, like the, the mocap thing. It's a sort of mixed blessing in a sense, and I think that possibly it's a generational thing, like kids who grew up with motion capture just being a part of film, you know, that it wouldn't stand out as too jarring to them, but I do feel that... Because we're of a certain age, of course. Like you see, especially if it's something that you've you've already seen done, and what to us is like a better way. Like it's weird seeing trailers for new Ninja Turtles and new Ghostbusters. Uh, yeah, oh absolutely. Because oh, yeah. to me, it's like you know Ninja Turtles and and the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and all this. It's it's a guy in an animatronic costume, mm, mm-hmm. like that's what it's been for thirty yeah, years. Absolutely, and there's something kind of like, in a way, especially in like the case of like Ninja Turtles, it's these poor f-ing pricks. They have to wear all these giant gym heads and puppets, yeah. with like you know remote yes. controls to make the faces work, and they've got to do ninja underneath. It. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that sort of that labor element, I suppose. It's 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 these things of like as my the sides of my head go grey like poorly walnuts, and I start to grouse more and more about like you know how easy these kids today have it you know oh you got a few balls sellotape to your face back in my day (laughs) but no i mean also with practical effects i i think sometimes um practical effects don't age um the way cg does uh and i think if you look at look at look at the original ghostbusters films um that use very practical effects with with optics and models and things um and you look at them now and they sort of i think they look just as good today as they did now but you look at some cg films in the early days and they quickly age um and also i think as well with, with any um i mean we're going to live action a bit here but um many films that have great effects. People don't realise that actually a lot of those are practical effects and that's why they look so good, because they're real. But yeah, like you said, we're, we're of an age where we've seen a big change and uh, we can reminisce, can't we, and uh, <laughs> what we were, we were brought up with. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's important to have a balance there and not just go full CG. But then again, I mean, um, I'm sure as we'll discuss in a bit as well, I think um, a lot of uh, films that are, that are feature films that are done in CG that are great, they understand the traditional artistic aspect as well, and you know that 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 also comes first. You know, drawing um, leads up to that, and uh, maybe that's why their films work so well because they've got that that you know that key understanding. Mm. Well, there's something else that the um, that they go into a little bit uh, in the interview coming up. The sort of the importance mm. of of a good sort of artistic background 
you know, more than anything, how to how to draw. It's one of those things that kind of does my head in a bit about like sort of let's 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 generalize because why not? Uh, millennial animators uh, okay. who I'm uh, you know I'm meeting more and more of every day. Some of them uh, I even work alongside, or we work on the same projects and things like that. And it's mm-hmm. not that much younger than me, but a hugely disparate attitude as far as what's required of an animation background to be competent not even necessarily sort of skilled. And I do think that the people who are kind of dropping off at the first hurdle are the ones that never really put in the legwork in very important areas. Yeah. People whose attitude toward life drawing, for example, is, oh, no, I, I can do life drawing. I, I went to like five sessions when I was in uni. It's like, mm. way to fucking miss the point of that. <laughs> you know, you're never done with life drawing. No. Like, no. If, you, if you consider yourself an artist, it's, it's not something you ever master. No. I don't know what it is, but it's it's a very kind of quick fix mentality. Mm. And I think that maybe because, you know, what's in vogue at the moment and certainly what makes a lot of sense in terms of budgets available is very limited, very basic approaches to animation. But then for what seemed like, you know, people my age, these were all kind of like stepping stones or placeholder gigs that we'd happily take in the hope that one day something comes along that really, really challenges us. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I think an awful lot of people would come into that kind of thing and, and feel sort of out of their depth. Yeah. You know? And yeah. that's actually a few people have like, they've been brought on and then they've been sort of like summarily dismissed after a couple of weeks because they just don't have the skill set or the mm-hmm. discipline or the work ethic, which is a real shame. Yeah. That's the big thing more than anything. Even if you don't know the stuff, it's the willingness to learn. Yes. Some people kind of don't have that instilled in them. Yes, yeah. So there you go. I, you know, that was just a sort of... I blame Pokemon Go. <laughs> but no, it's right what you say. I mean, I think life drawing, um, it's a skill. Okay, not, not everyone can do it, but it's a learned skill. And it's its almost very similar to exercise. If you're, if you're a runner and you go out running marathons and things, if, if you stop running for a week or two weeks and you get back again, you're going to find it's tough because your body body adapts to things, doesn't it? Whether it's exercise or whether it's, whether it's life drawing. And you need to keep practicing it. You need to keep exercising. And I think with something like life drawing, something that needs to always be done. You know, you can't unlearn things. You know, your body adapts quickly. And I think it's something that you have to always, you know, reinforce yourself to be doing. And um, and it comes with hard graft, doesn't it? You know, putting the time in, putting the hours in to do it. Um, the same thing as you know with, with with music and sound design. You know how we also do. Um, you know you have to put the work in. If if I'm writing a song, um, sometimes I might if it's a simple tune, I might go through you know ten, twenty, maybe even thirty different ideas, and I might scrap them all and develop them all until I'm happy. And that can that can be it can be stressful at times, can be hard at times. Sometimes it's not fun. Sometimes it, it just happens. Um, okay, it's always fun. I, I take that back. It's always fun. But it's hard. And you know, you've always got to, you've always push yourself to do to do more. I think it's no different to a to a role playing game like Skyrim or something. You know, you have to learn your skills. If your character doesn't do them, they they will drop. And I think it's the same in real life. I think it's very true. Absolutely, you, I like that you, you come up with Skyrim. The closest sort of analogy I can think of is Tamagotchi. Well, yes, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> That's what an old piece of shit I am. No, no, it's, it's true. It's true. I think the reason this is so on my mind is I just realised it's actually been over a year since I went to a life drawing class, and I'm feeling a little self conscious about it. Uh, so I should probably get back into that. Absolutely. Well, I think the last time I did it was um, uh, back at the Bradford Animation Festival. And Joanna Quinn. Oh, always, Joanna, yeah. Yeah, she would, I, she'd always do her, her workshops, which were fantastic. And I think one year, a couple of years, 
maybe maybe more than that, but some of the years I used to join in and stuff, and it's, it's so fantastic. And um, um, yeah, I'm certainly a lot rusty. A lot. Of, I'm, I'm also more, more rusty now, but um, yeah, you can you can see when you don't do something for a while um, how the standard drops. <laughs> but it's still great fun. But also, you can tell in, in an hour of life drawing how you can improve in an hour of life drawing. I think it's it's so important. Um, I remember back in back in Bradford as well. I can't. Remember, it was a long time ago. Um, there was an animator who'd worked on the Lion King movies. I can't remember his name, um, but he'd done all sorts of things. And uh, he had um, he had a, uh, a board out, and he had a sort of like an A one or A two sort of uh, sort of pad of paper. It had his magic marker pen, and uh, he was just sort of knocking the sheep's back and saying, "Oh, here's a character. Uh, oh, what should we draw? Um, here's one of the hyenas from 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 Lion King." And in ten seconds, he just drew this perfect character. He said, "Oh, it's awful. I haven't drawn that for like ten years." And I thought, well, "That's incredible!" And uh, that, that you know, that's proof that that's someone who's worked at it and uh, obviously very talented, but they've put the hours in. They've they've, they've done the hard work and. Uh, I think that's how you do well, isn't it? Yeah. And then there are those people who are just, like, good the moment they start. I call them bastards. <laughs> we don't have to talk about them. <laughs> yes, yes. There's always going to be those sort of people as well. But, um, but yeah, so re- us, us, the rest of us mere mortals must, must just work at things and, and try hard. Mm. So going back to Annecy, um, mm. oh, yes. this year they also had a presentation from the uh, team behind Ice Age. Yes, yes. Who, which is now on its... Fifth film, fifth, fifth feature right? film. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. And uh, yeah, there have been um, Blue Sky, uh, owned by Fox. Before the Ice Age films, they were doing. Um, they were working as a because uh, Chris Wedge was one of the founders of uh, of Blue Sky, and they moved from another 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 studio, which um, I think was responsible for a lot of the visual effects for Tron, and um, that sort of closed down, and they formed Blue Sky. And I think. They, they did visual effects of feature films. They um, worked on Alien Resurrection, um, did the aliens swimming through the water and things. And uh, even mm-hmm. um, even the penguin in Fight Club. Uh, there's a dream sequence in Fight Club when they said, think of your power animal, and his power animal is a penguin. Uh-huh. And uh, in the size case, they yeah. did things like that. And then they're, they're now focused solely on doing animated, uh, animated film, which is brilliant. But yes, yes, um, this is their fifth film. And both uh, Mike Thermayo and uh, Louis Forte, the director and the producer, respectively, um, they've been there since the very beginning. They've really been, you know, a huge driving force for the whole franchise. That was fantastic to meet with them in Annecy, and um, and then to see them, uh, they did a presentation. They talked about some of the conceptual art and some of the story and what they've done new visually in the film. And it's great, I think, to see it's, it's a fifth film, and they've still got some great ideas. I think they've still got ideas, always still got lots of ideas of how she can take the story further. Mm. And it's great that they've also, I think they've really uh, freshened the franchise up um, in the fifth instalment. And uh, they've done something which is visually quite quite new. And um, I think they've done a lot in this film. I think they've put a lot into it. Yeah, I think it's going to be very successful. Yeah, I, I made it to part three. Mm. Um, I, know, I know I definitely got that far into it. Yes. So I guess I'm only one behind most. Yes. Part three had Simon Pegg in it, right? Yeah, you've got Dawn of the Dinosaurs, which yeah. is part of three, which comes after the meltdown. Uh, then you got Continental Drift, and uh, now you got uh, Collision Course, which is uh, which right. is um, which is number five. But Simon Pegg, uh, his character Buck, 
he, he comes back into this film as well. And he's got this sort of alter ego character lives inside his mind, which is quite an interesting concept as another character who uh, okay. like a weasel. So uh, uh, that's quite interesting. So there, I think in, in this film there will be um, there's lots of new lots of new characters, very different characters that are being introduced. Um, but you also see um, some other characters from the previous films coming back. So it's almost like a, a, a big reunion almost of um, all the characters that have that because from the first film. Um, we start with a few characters. Uh, you've got the three central characters, Manny, Sid and Diego, uh, who are consistent throughout. And they say form a, a herd, uh, a family. And uh, throughout the films, the herd has grown and grown and grown. And they've, met, they've amassed you know, more followers. And you know, the family has grown. And there have been lots of love interests and lots of new friends along the way. And in this, this five film, they all sort of almost converge together. And uh, I think that's really nice to see. To me, I think the notion of the sequel set in space... Mm. maybe puts people on their guard a bit. Mm. But from what you're saying, I guess that there's enough that sort of works well in this film. I did see the trailer for it recently, uh, we, the full trailer for it. It was a very Scrat-centric trailer. Mm. They didn't really go much into the the adventures of the main sort of prehistoric animal ensemble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I do remember when I saw the third one where I, there was like a girl squirrel thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like a sort of love interest. And I remember that yeah. film, to me, it seemed a little bit like that story had said all it needed to say. Mm. But then I do suppose it's kind of like a Coyote Roadrunner thing. Like, I guess that sort of a chase that could just carry on yeah. indefinitely as a series of skits. Well, it, it's quite nice, isn't it? Because his, 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 uh, it's, it's a simple concept. He's chasing this acorn, which he's never going to get, is he? Well, I mean, he, he gets it and loses it. He's never going to keep that acorn. And um, I suppose it's kind of a lesson for life, isn't it? You know, um, we're, we're everyone sort of chasing something, which yeah. we may not ever get. And it's, you know, it's trying to get that fulfilment. Uh, and when he has it, he manages to, to lose it. And But it's quite nice because I think what's, what's great from that simple concept of Scrat, who, um, when they were um, originally conceptualising Ice Age and drawing the characters, uh, Peter Deseb, am I correct? Is that how I pronounce his name? Who was the concept artist who designed uh, all of the characters in Ice Age? Um, he's designing all the characters and he designed the character Scrat. And they looked at this character and he was basically, at the time, this has been back in the early times before the Ice Age, Ice Age 1 came out, Scrat wasn't really even meant to be an important character at first. He was just this insignificant squirrel who was basically intended to end up on the bottom of someone's foot, you know, somewhere as he does in the film. And. Um, but uh, but they said no 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 it's this 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 is such a great character he has to be in this film and they developed him and he's become you know I think he's become the you know and, and in his own right an iconic character in the animation world um, and uh, it's brilliant and I think the especially the, the animated sequence was, was scrapped. I think that's just, they're so good to see especially I think for computer animation those scrap sequences. Um, I think that's quite unique to computer animation to see it animated in, 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 in that very expressive, you know, really text savory sort of way, you know, it's like you said, watching a Wiley Coat, even Roadrunner sort of thing. Um, and they've done so much more because I, I saw the first, um, the first few minutes of the, of, of um, Collision Course and um, obviously there's the short um, Cosmic Stratastrophe featuring Scrat and he basically... Um, through his own unwittingly doing, he basically uh, manages to form the solar system in this weird sort of parody of sort of snooker or pool or uh, with all the planets sort of, you know, bouncing off one another. Um, and all the time he's just trying to get his acorn, you know, doesn't know what's going on. But they build upon that 
and they really do a lot with the animation. They do some really fantastic comic sequences with Scrat. And I mean, um, from my my limited knowledge of Maya, which they which they use the rig. Um, that they've used for Scrat in this film is the same as the rig they used in, um, which would have been the Art Meltdown, I believe, in 2006, I think. I'm watching these scenes with Scrat being squashed and sort of being deformed because they're playing with gravity and things in this spaceship yeah. that he's in. And I'm thinking, how did they do that? Um, you know, I'm just thinking logistically from a, a modelling and rigging perspective. How are they doing that? And it still looks great. And, um, Hats off to them. They've done some pretty good work there, and uh, I think, yeah, I think I, I could watch Scrat all day. I think it's just, uh, you know, I mean, he, he, I think he should have his own his own feature film. <laughs> Whether there will be another one, um, I guess nobody knows yet. I, I think it's the kind of thing they'll they'll just carry on indefinitely until it's you know no longer viable for naturally. Yeah. If, as you say, like she she has other ideas and stuff mm-hmm. for where the story can go, then I you know they would probably keep going back to that well as long as people want to you know, keep seeing those characters. Yeah. Like you were I'm, I'm not sure, entirely sure if I'd agree I'd, I'd want to see a scrap feature. Oh, yes. But like as a series <laughs> of shorts, well, maybe. Well, yes, yes, yes. Or something, something, yeah, something more like you know. that, yeah. You might want to rest. So, uh, but yes, but it, it, it obviously works having those sequences with the feature film because he, he really does break up and change the pace. Um, yeah. So that, that works really nicely. Um, I remember especially in the first film, it was a very refreshing approach to take. Mm with that as a kind of narrative device and something that would be a kind of palate cleanser yeah. between scenes that would be a little more dramatic or a little slower or, you know, play to a different sort of mood in terms of the emotional development of the characters yeah. and things like yes. that. And then so to, so to have something like Scrat as this kind of ever present thing, you know, that sort of breaks up the action and that sort of thing. That's good. Mm-hmm. It, it would find, I'm sure it's footing somewhere else if they stopped making feature films mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a way. I'm sort of amazed that they haven't, milked it to the point of absolute repugnancy like the minions because mm. they found something there that they just knew they could make a gajillion toys out of or or whatever like you know anything to just slap a minion sticker on it placemats <laughs> you know cutlery birth control pills <laughs> but scrat as far as i know scrat's been relatively not nearly as merchandised in no, that sort of I'm- oversaturated way yeah, I, 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 I can't really, I mean, I, 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 I don't quote me on this, but I, I don't really think, um, yeah, from a merchandising perspective, I don't think that's really, I don't know, I mean, I mean yeah, I mean, there's, there's always going to be some merchandise, but I don't think it's going to be to the extent of, uh, you know, um, you know, the likes of what they've done with the Minions movie by Elimination, or the likes of sort of uh, DreamWorks or Pixar or Disney, I don't think they've really... Um, maybe gone as far with the merchandising. I might be completely wrong. I'm sure there is there when there is lots of merchandising, obviously. I mean when I when I met Mike and Laurie, I know they're they're really passionate about these films they made and I think what they try to really talk about is that Blue Skies a studio is um it's it's just a great working environment. It's like a it's like a family of people. And um when they were all starting everyone was it was it was a new thing for everybody and they've built it themselves from the ground up and uh, Mike is a as a fantastic animator who went straight to animation lead, animation supervisor, and then he's directing the films. Laurie's been the producer throughout, writing all the films, and they've both contributed to the, the story. Um, they're they're both a huge driving force to these uh, to these films, and uh, you know they they know the characters so well now. Uh, you know that they can they can sit down and say, okay, this is this 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 situation is happening. We said to Sloth, how's he going to react? And they know the character inside out. They know. They can sort of, you know, come up with stories very quickly and uh, in a very intuitive way. 
um, and they can animate in the same way because they, they you know, they, they've, they've been with it since, since its very beginning, you know, and um, they use very different colours, a very different colour palette to what they've used before in, in other Ice Age films. But they've also subliminally used this in the normal Ice Age environment as well. So you can see um, the hints of purples in the, in, you know, around the, around the clouds and things, and you can see sort of the pink highlights on mountain tops, um, even even the hints of sort of purples and some new new characters as well. And I think it's nice that they've they've embraced this this new color palette and they've they've, they've integrated it into the story in a way that it just works. You know, in the whole world, and because it's believable, and it just it doesn't it doesn't feel disjointed. Like you know, you've got your main characters from one universe, and these new ca- alien alien sort of s characters are from a different universe. They all it all fits together well, and that's almost allowed it allowed the visual style to evolve further. Tremendous. Mm. Well, good. Well, I'm uh, I'm keen to hear what the filmmakers have to say with all of that uh, in mind. So let's hear from the director Michael Thermier and the producer Laurie Forte of Ice Age Collision Course. When the, the very first Ice Age film was out, 3D animation was was you know exciting time in its infancy. Yeah. Um, how did you both join Blue Sky? You want to start? Um, well, I was I actually was developing um, some projects, some animated projects for for Fox. I was a producer. I had a producing deal, and one of the projects I developed was Ice Age. And um, it's it's interesting because it wasn't necessarily supposed to be 3D. We sort of started thinking of it for 2D, and then ultimately um, they were going after Chris Wedge because they wanted to work with Chris, and Chris was looking for a first film to direct. And we had this wonderful script called Ice Age, and so they put us together, <laughs> and um, and it just worked out really great so that's kind of how I came to Blue Sky and, mm-hmm. I, and, and honestly it's it's such a great place as soon as we you know we started working with Blue Sky in pre-production it was really clear that that was a place to be it was outside of Hollywood it was just a great group of people it had a real family feeling and it, and it was a we were all making the, a film for the first time like mm-hmm. so it really felt like a great thing and it just evolved and grew and I've been at Blue Sky ever since Fantastic. Yeah, I came uh, right out of school a couple years before um, Ice Age came to, uh, or at least a year before Ice Age came to uh, to Blue Sky. It was um, that time, like you said, uh, in ni- when I came out of school in 1997, it was uh, the industry was just really blowing up. Everybody was was getting into it, and um, I'd been trained uh, up in Canada, Sheridan College in traditional animation, so I didn't I didn't know anything about uh, computer animation at all. And when I came to Blue Sky uh, for an interview, um, they were just really great, and uh, and you know they took me around. I met everybody. They I sat down with an animator, uh, Steve uh, Tukowski, and he uh, he gave me a little demo on computer animation and Softimage, and uh, and it totally was like a light bulb moment. Totally opened my mind, and it was a big like like I finally got it because I was like I don't know how this stuff works. You know, I've done traditional stuff, drawn stuff. And uh, and I just uh, it was a great it was a great place. You could tell that there was an energy to the company. They had big ideas and dreams, and they definitely wanted to get into to features and had done, done stuff like Joe's apartment. And um, I think when I interviewed there, maybe when I started, they were just doing some work on uh, what I think it was Alien Resurrection, mm-hmm. the CG alien swimming through the water, and it, it looked really great. So when I came on, it was like, okay, hopefully they'll get a, they'll get a feature going. And so I did some special effects, you know, uh, commercials and a couple little uh, feature shots. And then, um, and then one day there was like a big announcement, like we've got, we've got Ice Age coming in. So um, it was, it was great because at that time it was like they literally had, you know, the, 
the lamp, and they took off the lampshade, and there's a green light yeah. bulb on it, and they said, like, green light, and everybody's, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and we were only, I it think it was pretty goofy. I'm it was pretty saying. goofy. <laughs> but we were, you know, a bunch of, a nice. uh, bunch of newbies, and, um, you have the, you need something? No, no, not me. Somebody call me to give you that. Oh, maybe. Uh, no. That's That was interesting. Um, what were you talking about? The green light. It was like yes, the first yes. time. So it was all hands on deck, and like everybody, I think we were maybe between fifty and seventy-five people. I think when that happened, right? And then we grew to what? It was a really sweet gesture, actually. That yeah. They, did. It, they made it very special. Yeah. To yeah. Say that this was a go project. Yeah. So. And it, you know, so we did a little bit of storyboarding, um, just very little bit with uh, with Carlos, and uh, and mostly we just started to develop the look of the animation, like the, the how the characters would move, and like very simple at first. I remember building characters out of just spheres, mm-hmm. you know, and animating like what a what a cat run would look like, what a you know how would a mammoth move, and um, and so it was very like you know guerrilla tactics, you know, just anything to get the movie up on its feet while these guys were working on the story. But Mike was one of the star animators. He mm. became one of the star animators, which mm-hmm. is a good time which is clear because he moved up pretty quickly to become a, a you know director. Yes. I think I was so excited to just be on a movie. I was throwing everything into it, and, uh, <laughs> and you know, between like Chris and myself and a couple of the other animators, we um, we kind of just found. Uh, a style to the animation that kind of fit the um, the look of the film, and I guess kind of the budget in a way because it wasn't like right. we didn't have like a, it wasn't an enormous like hundred fifty mm-hmm. million dollar movie. It's, it had to be done kind of economically, um, especially since Blue Sky, like you said, had no prior experience. So I think the look of the film was definitely dictated by the, the conditions in which we had to make it. But I think that was a strength to it mm-hmm. that it gave it an edge and a style and a, and a different look. That set it apart from and from challenges things. because I think we were the first. I think we were among the first to do a movie outdoors in nature with animals with fur and yeah. you know we the state the the, the uh, technology wasn't as advanced back then so it was a yeah. lot more difficult. I remember actually when in the middle we were almost an ice age and Shrek came out right and that was mind blowing because mm-hmm. they you know PDI kind of had a leg up on uh, a lot of technical aspects and I remember being like oh my god you know they look at what they've done with cloth and fur and stuff and and then I was glad like well I'm glad our film's a little more stylized so yeah. we, there wouldn't be the pressure of trying to to match up to that because that was an intimidating <laughs> film when it came out and I'm, I think Monsters Inc came out right after that too and they had the great great yes. fur so yeah. luckily we had a style thing going for us which really helped absolutely well i mentioned i mean the first simulation you did was you had to do very manually didn't you by having yeah. sort of a, a sort of te- semi-transparent sort of plane to text you know textures on sort of protruding from the yeah uh, it wasn't real fur at all it no, was like no. right. called them fur cards yeah basically yeah. painted cards like you said yeah, yeah. um but it, and it's funny when you see i say ice age five or ice age collision course versus the first ice age um you can definitely see the evolution. You can really see the evolution from Ice Age, uh, um, the first Ice Age to the meltdown, because mm-hmm. that's where we rebuilt all the characters and, um, and and took advantage of new fur technology that we developed. And actually, uh, from the second Ice Age through this one, uh, it's all basically been the same character models. They've evolved a little bit. We've added a few things so they can they can move a little better than than they could before, but. Um, but they've been they were rebuilt from the ground up after the first movie. Mm-hmm. Well, I imagine I mean in the second movie, the meltdown, the one of the biggest technical challenges, especially as far as rendering is concerned, must have been the uh, the flood. Yeah, that, that great scene. Yeah. Um, actually, I I heard that you know it was a you know really uh, you know you were really sort of pushing your you know your technology to the limits you know at the time. Um, 
Um, for, we do that on every movie, actually. Yeah, yeah, sure. Every every film, trust me, they come to us and say, "You guys are what are you insane? Can't like we can't afford this." Yeah. And but they figure out a way of doing it. They're just so yeah. brilliant, and there's incredible um, genius there in terms of how they make something look yeah. great, even when they say they can't do it. Yeah. And what doesn't? They feel that they it should be better, and we think, "Oh my God, that's brilliant the way it is." I mean, how could you top that? Yeah. So it is interesting because I I think. You know, I don't know the exact numbers because they don't really actually tell us what the actual budget is. But I know they're all kind of in the same ballpark um, uh, for the last few movies. And on this one, we had the script just called for more uh, visual effects, special effects. Stuff. There's like a volcano eruption. There's um, electrical storm. There's, you know, uh, space, you know, things that are going on with the Scrat and uh, teleportation machines, all this kind of stuff. And we had to do these exhaustive meetings where uh, myself and my co-director, Gallen, would be in a room with all the heads of the departments, and we'd be watching the story reels of each particular sequence, and the departments would be telling us uh, how much it would cost to do every particular effect. And so we'd have to get down to the fine-grained details of, like, well, you know, the way you're composing this shot, you're showing the mammoth, like, walking through snow here. Um, and if you show that, then we have to put footprints in the snow, mm-hmm. and that's going to be an extra effect. And that's so many man days, you know, it'll take somebody to do this. But if you tilt the camera up a little bit and don't show it, then we can save that and put that towards something else. Or change it from snow to ice or rock or something. And so we went through every scene and every little effect and kind of worked with them to get it down into a contained kind of, a, this is the amount of stuff we can do. And then, but it was great because then, in the midst of actually making it, when we're when we're when we're in production, our effects supervisor uh, Elvira um, would come to us and say, "Look, uh, we got a little extra time. So remember that you wanted that thing that whatever we we can do that for you now." So we ended up getting we made deals across the board with them, and then we ended up getting extra stuff added on. So I think mm-hmm. the movie looks like a much more expensive yeah. movie than it sh- than it should considering the budget. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, on the subject of animation, we must talk about Scrat, um, who is a uh, you know, very iconic catalyst who sort of you know unwittingly steers the story, you know, makes everything happen. Um, having you know animated Scrat and having both uh, you know for the whole uh, Ice Age franchise, you know, worked heavily, you know, involved with the storyline. What's it like working with uh, with Chris Wedge uh, for, for Scrat? There's no talking to him. Yeah, what a diva that guy. No, uh, well, we were just talking about this earlier that. Chris, as he pitched the Scrat on the first movie, always would act out the uh, the voice, and he just mm-hmm. became the voice of Scrat because there was nobody like, why go to anybody else? You've got the perfect guy there. Um, and on, you know, it's funny we don't actually have to ask him for that much more. You know, we have sort of a bunch of Scrat sounds that uh, that we use, and um, every now and then on on each film, I think there's been a particular something new or a couple new things that we haven't ever done with the Scrat. We're like, no, we should really get a new. Scrat sound, but Chris always, you know, he grumbles a little bit when yeah. he comes in because it hurts his voice to do it. Well, don't mm. forget, we're 14 years, before, you know, after the fact <laughs> mm. that we first did it. Yeah. You know, his voice, it's not as easy for him to get up that high anymore, yeah. and it's not that easy for him to expend all that energy. You can so, see him straining. Yeah. <laughs> like he's making it's this. It's not that easy. So, but we have, luckily, over the first few movies, we, we, we've banked so, so many of his different sounds that we tend to use those again and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and our editors, yeah. if you look at the 
on the the Avid, you know, they've got all the the timelines just filled with scratch sounds, and yeah. you know, being editorial, and you're just hearing scratch screams ad nauseum, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, you guys just want to kill yourselves. They have a million, <laughs> yeah. a million different kinds of million different kinds of squeaks and stuff. I mean, yeah. it's really funny, but you, it is a smorgasbord to pick and choose. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic, and and um, coming back to the start, I mean, uh, you said you were, you came from a traditional animation mm-hmm. background, um, obviously. Blue Sky is a computer animation house, but do you think um, if someone wants to go into computer animation, it's important to learn animation traditionally first, uh, or do you think it doesn't matter too much? You know, I think I think there's a lot of value in uh, in studying traditional arts for sure. Like I think my first year of um, of animation school at, uh, at Sheridan College was a lot of it was just focused on drawing, like life drawing and um, and painting and, and figure drawing stuff like that. Um, and I think that made a huge difference, especially in understanding, you know, form and movement, even through still drawings. And uh, so I, th- I think you don't, I don't, you don't need to have that to be a computer animator, but I think it helps, um, especially if you can sketch quickly, because I think people can run through a lot of ideas with just thumbnails. And if you have a better understanding of, um, of those principles, you know, without the technology kind of being a crutch or getting in the way when you just have to make that on, on paper. I think it, I think it does help. Mm-hmm. And, and for, from a story perspective, that must be, you know, uh, vital, you know, to really get ideas out quickly and work collaboratively. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I mean, we storyboard artists, we still work on 2D. I mean, they don't yeah. write on, do it on paper anymore. They do it right on their Cintiqs mm-hmm. and their computers. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's always still 2D drawing. And, and even though they're, they, they don't have to be brilliant pieces, works of art or anything, you still need to convey emotion. You still need to get yeah. the, the sort of the body movement so that even in a, just a single panel, you get the emotion and what's going on in the sequence. So I think... I think traditional drawing is very good to have. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's some storyboard artists that just draw very fast and they just do it and they get away with it. And then others, <laughs> you know, they it, it's, it, it's, it helps if you really have a background in drawing. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Fantastic. Well, um, from a story element as well, I mean, um, um, we've had in every film really and also what was established in the first film the importance of family and yeah. uh, that family doesn't have to be uh, you know the sort of the, the 2.4 children sort of idea <laughs> oh, the yeah. family thing. Um, you know it can be um, it can, you know they can be people that have to be related that have to be the same species you know they can yeah. they can create a family and it's not always going to be easy and they have to work at it um, but we've had um, you know obviously the advent of the ice age that scrap you know accidentally started in the first film we've had floods dinosaurs pirates <laughs> now um, in, in the short uh, scrap if I can say catastrophe as a tongue twister, yeah, yeah. Um, we've got scratching space. Um, yes. You know, so starting out there, what establishing uh, film five. Um, what can you What can you guys do next? You know, what else can you can you give to us after this film? Will it Will it oh, be yeah. uh, Will it be an Ice Age six? <laughs> that is, uh, I, mean, I guess we'll see how this one does. I think we seem to approach every movie just as its own thing. Yeah. You know, it, it, I don't. There's never been like, well, like a, we've got seven, eight, nine planned, or six, seven, eight after. We don't have a plan, but there are there are. Ideas. I mean, I'm I'm already brewed an idea where where it would go next. So it's I you know there there still is but I don't know whether we'll get a chance to do it I hope yeah. we will, but if we don't you know but I I don't think I mean I think there is there are still things left. To do. But you know what's mm-hmm. cool about the spaceship, which I know on its surface could seem like man these guys have gone crazy, yeah. but the the spaceship is actually something that was conceived in Ice Age One. It was they're walking through what we called the Ice Museum and they walk past like the there's the evolution of Sid and then you know there was actually a dinosaur 
frozen in ice, mm-hmm. which maybe was a little allusion to Ice Age Three. And there also um, was the piranha. There's frozen the piranhas, yeah. Ice Age yeah, so yeah, all the answers were there. In the yeah. prison. But then, uh, and then the uh, the frozen spaceship, and the little kid gives yes. a little. So I mean, it's that moment that was right. like the genesis for like you know that was a cool moment. I mean, we. And so in this moment, in this in this film, Scrat finds that spaceship from Ice Age One, and that's where it starts to take off for. So the so this movie is really rooted very much in the in the legacy and the and you know of that movie of the first movie. So it very much has been connected. Yeah. Oh, absolutely fantastic. Um. One thing I wanted to ask, um, doing a, a 3D stereoscopic movie, um, how does that affect um, the storytelling um, or, or the animating? Do you have to uh, adapt, uh, adapt the story um, to, to work? Yeah, I mean, we, uh, we have a really great uh, stereo team led by uh, Dan Abramovich um, at Blue Sky, and he's very much about uh, getting us the material um, as soon as possible at various stages. And so even in board form, as we're looking at stuff, we're thinking about how it could be utilized in stereo. And, and, you know, Dan is very careful to, like, look, you can't just throw everything at the audience all the time. You've got to have, mm-hmm. you know, peaks and valleys and rest points and, um, and stuff. And, and so they're very good at that. But we, yeah, as we conceive shots, you know, from going from the storyboard to what we call layout, which is setting up the cameras and stuff, um, that's, that's on our mind. And so we'll, we'll set up what we think would look great in stereo, and then they'll they'll do a stereo pass of just the layout and we can look and like, okay, that works pretty good, but you know, maybe we can pull that out in the audience space or let that sit back uh, more. And there are certain sequences where I'm, you know, they, for me, they work better in stereo than in, than in 2D because in a way you can focus the eye on a particular spot uh, a little easier actually in stereo because you can put the focus right and put those characters right mm-hmm. where you want and let more stuff fall back. Um, mm-hmm. So there's there's certain shots that um, that work really great in stereo. And so we're always thinking of that through the through the whole movie because we want to make sure people have a, have an experience in in stereo. But That's it's tricky because it wasn't um, in dinosaurs. Yeah, Found of the dinosaurs. We were already in the mi- making of the movie. Yeah, and in the middle mm-hmm. of the movie, they said, "Oh, we're going to do this in six. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then and then you had to sort of backtrack. And yeah, out. yeah. And, and it was the first time that the studio was even doing it. Yeah. So on top of that, we had we were halfway through the movie, not thinking about that. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. having to do it. Had to kind of retrofit yeah. it. You do have to think about it um, a lot, and uh, I think Blue has gotten uh, better and, and better at it. So I think I feel like you get your money's worth if you go and in 3D and it's not going to hurt your eyes you're not going to be poked in the face all the time uh, but you'll get a nice tasteful but dynamic you know mm-hmm. um, version of, of stereo fantastic um, I think we've still got a little bit of time sure. um, um, we, we should really talk about the three uh, central characters you know Manny, Diego and Sid mm. okay. um, um, when you um, conceptualise those characters um, from a you know from an actual visual perspective and an animation perspective um, the characters who did the voiceovers um, how much of an inspiration were they to sort of look and, uh, you know, the actual, um, the way the characters move? Did you take a lot of inspiration from those actors as well? Well, the, the look you should, sp- should speak to because you were more involved in that. In the, in in the look, first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it's interesting. We did not, we, we did not actually, we designed the characters first before mm-hmm. we got, we had the actors. And, and so what we usually do when we, when we are, were casting, at least especially from that, we would listen to... Just be more. We would listen to voices. We our casting director would send us sort of 
you know, voices from interviews that actors had done and TV shows and movies and things. And we'd listen to the voice and we'd look at the, 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 the photo, the, the design of the character and we'd have the maquette of the character and we would sort of see what voice felt like it would really come from these mm-hmm. characters. Yeah. So we did it that way, except with the one, one exception, it was sort of in reverse to the question you just asked. John mm-hmm. Leguizamo was struggling to find a voice for, for Sid, and he actually sent us like like 40, 50 different takes of Sid, um, all different kinds of dialects, all different kinds of ethnicities, all, all, all everything. And we just and he just sent it to us because he was not quite figuring out how, what, what he should do. And then we showed him the, the, the design of the character, and he looked at it and he, he said to us, he said, well... He's got buck teeth, those big buck teeth. That's got to be some kind of speech impediment there. He's got to be able, and then he started doing the lateral lisp, and it just stopped. And so him looking at the design of the character gave him the inspiration for who, who Sid became. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, when we listen to the voices in, in animation, um, I don't think we overtly said, okay, we're going to... Because I don't know how you'd make a mammoth move like Ray Romano anyway. But, <laughs> yeah. it's, but you know, their performance and the dialogue shots definitely would influence. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's subconsciously, it influences like how you, how you end up uh, performing. But I have one, one more thing to say. So Ray Romano, I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to. <laughs> Ray Romano was very funny because when we first had him in, when we were first pitching the project and we brought him the maquette of, of, of Manny yeah. and everything, and he says, oh, he was excited by it. And he says, well, what kind of voice do you hear from him? I said, well, we hear your voice, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, well, but it's a mammoth. It would be really deep. It would be, how, how would, <laughs> would you want me to speak like that? And I said, no, we want your voice, right? And he said, but my voice. He would not understand that. <laughs> After the first session, we made him do his voice, and then he called his agent. His agent called me. He thinks Ray thinks you're going to fire him because <laughs> he doesn't understand. And I said, just wait. And we showed him um, his voice cut into the story reels, and it started getting a little bit more comfortable with it. And you know, yeah. whatever. And then he said, history. at the end of the movie, the movie was released, and he says, well, you can't fire me now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic! Well, thank you so much both of you joining us today. I'm looking yeah, forward great. to the uh, preview screening later. Great, great. And uh, I hope you both have a lovely time in Annecy. That was Mike Thurmeyer and Laurie Forte, the team behind Ice Age Collision Course, out this Friday in the UK. And thank you very much to Wesley Allard for sitting down with them. And uh, look who I found. It's Steve. Hello. How you doing, Steve? Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. That was a very pleasant listen. It is interesting that there is still life in the beast that is Ice Age. They keep going back to the, the idea, don't they? And adding new things. And it's good to see that so much malleability i suppose out of those characters yeah so there you go with uh, if that's uh, up your street check it out out this weekend it's been out actually in bristol for a little while i'm not sure if it's sort of been having like a limited release but i guess the major sort of wide release is this friday at any rate ice age collision course out soon so the last podcast um it was a little morose in places in terms of our um you know our, our post-brexit commiseration and uh, unfortunately, some more sad news uh, since the last episode. A uh, staple of British children's television, uh, animated television, Gordon Murray, passed away, unfortunately. Although he had a good innings. Hey, very good innings, 95 years old. It is worth marking the passing of, of Gordon Murray as such a tremendously influential figure in British children's animated television. Obviously responsible for... Such, you know, wonderful classics uh, as Camberwick Green, Trumpton and Chigley. And I think without those 
should we say, uh, vital films. <laughs> it's hard calling them vital when they're just, you know, children's things. But without those vital films, I don't think the shape of children's animation in the UK as it is today would stand. I think it, they went an awfully long way in terms of establishing a tone for British children's animation. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that went on to influence an awful lot of, you know, really, really sort of popular television series. You know, and I think that it's a big part of the public consciousness even today. Yeah. Um, you know, Americans would do stuff with, with puppets and stop motion and stuff like that. But the American sensibilities, you know, are, are quite different and quite specific. When you look at something that Gordon Murray created or his peers, there's something just sort of very particular and British and special about them. Well, if you look at uh, what was being created at the time in America, it was what Chuck Jones called uh, illustrated radio. So it's this kind of back and forth thing, I suppose, whereas Gordon Murray's things came from his traditions of, of being a puppet maker and being a, a, a puppeteer for, for BBC um, children's television. Um, and then in 1966 came along and, and, and broadcast uh, Camberwick Green. It was the first full-colour uh, British children's animated television series. And its only real contemporaries were the kind of films that uh, small films were making. Peter Fermin and Oliver Postgate making things like, uh, you know, The Clangers, etc. Uh, so it really was, it was there at the beginning, Ben, you know, and, and uh, it, it helped shape uh, the future of, of British, uh, you know, children's television animated series. And without it, I doubt we would have had, uh, you know, he wouldn't have influenced uh, Filmfare so much. And I don't think we would have had Postman Pat. I don't think we would have had Charlie Chalk. We wouldn't have had Bob the Builder. We wouldn't have had all these kind of wonderful things that we've grown used to in our childhood, really. I think certainly because, uh, yeah, we were probably of an age where... Gordon Murray stuff sort of preceded us, you know. Hmm. We were children of the eighties, and uh, uh, the shows that we watched were more basically designed to sell toys <laughs> and bug our parents with. And I think you, it's more a case of sort of looking back and appreciating the cultural significance of what someone contributed to, you know, the art form. So we, I think, would have yeah, like you say, seen more of the the shows that owe their existence to that. Yeah. So I think there's still an influence today, isn't there? There was recently the Radiohead video. I say influence, more of a kind of kicking the balls, <laughs> according to his family. I, I thought that was a loving homage, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. But I, I know that they weren't too happy about that. Yeah, they, they, were, they, were, they weren't happy at all, were they? But it, I think it, it may be a demonstration if they take it with a... If they, take it, if they were to take it, Ben, with a kind of the homage as it was meant to be, it's quite a compliment that a film series that's 50 years old is still influencing people. I would have thought so. I think that maybe the the marriage of um, what was a very identifiable approach to the animation and the design style with, you know, an also very old kind of corny horror flick. I wouldn't have assumed that would really cause offense, Mm. to be perfectly honest. They're they're both kind of cultural staples that are sort of oddly mishmashed together for a music video. So I don't know. Maybe, uh, Maybe he would have been absolutely dead set against that. But it seemed pretty innocuous to me. Yeah, absolutely. But then again, you know, I'm I'm I have pretty dark tastes myself. So what's innocuous to me is not necessarily the same for everyone else. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have got Manic is in a twist quite so much. I mean, it's nice to see that uh, Camberwick Green is uh, more relevant than Radiohead. So there you go. <laughs> well, R.A.P. Gordon Murray, the legacy will live on. It will beyond uh, Radiohead music videos, I'm sure. Hopefully. <laughs>
to bring things round to the more sort of cheery side of uh, industry goings on, uh, there have been some new trailers and new uh, film announcements, some uh, less revelatory than others. Yeah, uh, there's been an official announcement that uh, Wreck-It Ralph is getting a sequel. Uh, eager squiggly readers will already know this because we reported on it in 2014, didn't we, Ben? We're prophetic that way. We are. We're the Nostradamus of animation news. Are you excited for a second outing for Wreck-It Ralph? I thought the first one was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I, I really am. I'm a massive fan of Rich Moore, uh, the guy who's you know behind the helm at this one. Uh, I think he's a real good inclusion to the Disney uh, feature department. I mean, we I absolutely loved Zootopia. I mean, what he does, he takes that kind of that kind of humorous look at society and injects it with all that Disney magic and you know creates something that really kind of reflects the times, uh, which is what Disney always does as it, at its very best is reflect the times. I mean, that, that might seem like a, seem a bit of a daft statement, but Disney are not formulaic. You know, they're always looking for, for a different angle. I mean, it'd be dead easy for them to churn out the same film again and again and again, but that wouldn't really gel with the audience. I don't think that the audience would get behind that I think certainly, definitely, in the in the case of Wreck-It Ralph, they really w- were able to achieve something that fully sort of embraced this nostalgia glut that's sort of sweeping the world, especially as regards, you know, that era. It's sort of odd to think, because in the 90s, you know, like, 80s culture was passe and corny, and now it sort of represents, I think, our lost hopes and dreams. <laughs> so we're desperate to go back to it. Uh, I thought Wreck-It Ralph did a far better job of celebrating the culture of video games of that era than, um, well, say, for example, that awful Adam Sandler film, The Pixels, nonsense. As good a premise as that was as a short film, that was a pretty poor feature by all accounts. Mm. Wreck-It Ralph was warm, had proper character. It, just, it was just enjoyable, you know, and I can, I can imagine it, you know, working quite well, uh, taking on, you know, more contemporary video game culture. I felt a lot more for Ralph's character than I did for Gru or Megamind. I think, uh, you know, because there's two two films there about a villain uh, wanting to become a good guy, and they're done incredibly well. But I felt a lot more for, for Ralph in that in that respect. But I think maybe that's because I was I was tied to the nostalgia. It's very possible. I think certainly that the, the environment probably helped, as well as all the lovely little sort of visual gags, you know, like the sort of... The the way it sort of played on, you know, the, the tropes of video games and, like, I loved the, you know, early in the film they have the video game villain Anon meeting. Yeah. Where they're kind of sharing their remorse stories and, you know, the, the pullback of that, you know, as it sort of reveals where they all are was a great sort of visual gag. It was loaded with little moments of, you know, what we all sort of grew up with and then kind of, you know, gave it this, this sort of warm you know, heart to it, one sort of personality. I thought Sarah Silverman was fantastic in it. Oh, yes. And it was a very well-conceived character as well, mm-hmm. you know. And I like, you know, even the the stuff that's like the melodrama they put in for the kids, in a sense, but it's so, like, goofy melodrama, the subterfuge and the, the deceit and the goings-on, the politics of the video game universe and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's King Candy right the way through was a very kind of affable goof. And then right at the end when he turns... 
into this crazy evil monster it's quite genuinely terrifying but i like that i mean that's such a great way of re- introducing yeah. that concept to to young'uns yeah yeah absolutely and also because I, I guess in the in the wreck it ralph one there was that sort of contemporary video game element as well they had the character from like the really high-end sci-fi military game mm-hmm. calhoun and the way she would always like freeze up because she was like traumatized from this like fake thing that never happened <laughs> and you know her sort of like joining forces with this 8-bit pixel character i thought that was you know a nice little thing so i'm I'm interested to see how they presumably expand on that kind of thing with the next one Mm -hmm. so yeah they've released uh, an image uh from the film which is ralph and uh, vanellope stood uh triumphantly over the internet ready to wreck it by looks things and i like the the way that they've put the parodied uh the internet they've got some rather ridiculous uh internet names here so there's google with the u from uber lubhub amazing uh, Jiffy, uh, Buzzaholic, Pictopedia, and Squiggly. Uh, all these ridiculous internet uh, website <laughs> names. <laughs> It'd be nice if they visited Squiggly. Let's uh, let's hope they do. So yeah, lots to look forward to there with uh, Wreck It Ralph. But it's uh, you know it's not making its way to us uh, immediately. Ben, we've got to wait until 2018. For God's sake, I need something sooner. Well. I suppose uh, maybe the Kubo and the Two Strings trailer? That's why we keep you around, Steve. Oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah this looks great, too. I'm really uh, I'm really excited about this. I'm hoping this will be the one that really puts Leica, like over the top. There's a certain quality to what we've seen from the trailers and the stills and stuff like that, the richness of it and the sort of cultural backdrop and everything. Well, I'd say there's nothing... But backgrounds, <laughs> when I look at all the pictures and the trailer and stuff, I'm watching it thinking of it as a stop motion film. And I can't get over the amount of detail and the amount of uh, just sheer uh, extravagance, I suppose, uh, that they've employed in this film. Because we know that Leica are very practically minded, they're not going to uh, just resort to CG. So when you look at uh, the characters, journeying through uh, forests, through icy tundras, through bamboo forests, and then across plains, you can't help but think, blimey, that's all made. That's such a big world that they've created in stop motion, a very restrictive medium. And they've, they're not ashamed of throwing you know, whatever they have to throw at this film to get the story told. And one hopes that that's not going to be just isolated to this film. I think that this is something that could really... If they master this approach to making a stop-motion film, which it looks like they have, Mm. hopefully they'd be given the resources to continue doing that and really bring you know, the notion of stop-motion, keep it as a relevant contemporary form of, of filmmaking, keep it up with the times because of what we're able to do now. I think there's obviously there's always going to be value in the more quaint approaches to stop motion the more sort of um financially restricted doesn't necessarily make for a bad film of course we've seen some really really great stuff done in stop motion that is not nearly as extravagant in its environments but because of how wonderfully they've been put together Mm. they still work very well as films but i think that if you can marry a really well told film with you know a beautiful elaborate and ornate approach to the filmmaking i think that can be even better so I'm uh, I'm looking forward to this one definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing how they do the origami as well, the animated origami because that looks pretty special and like a good theme for the film. Yeah, of all the sort of like little bits and pieces they've released, that's one that really kind of stands out. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and something that, you know, makes you kind of think, like you say, like, how do they do that? You know, which is a nice thing to ponder in our position because of all the constant exposure we have to animation production. It's very rare that we'll see something and that will cross our minds. We'll probably just sort of intuitively know how it's done. So I'm intrigued. Hopefully it's not just CG. So, yeah, that's, that's going to be hitting uh, UK cinemas. I think it's the end of August. So, uh, yeah, we've got lots to look forward to there. Well, yeah, we're definitely keeping on top of this one. We'll be bringing you uh, coverage as it comes. So, another addition to what's been a pretty strong year for features. With all the kind of, you know, ranting and raving and, and whinging and moaning, there are lots of positive things as well. <laughs> so, hey, there you go. So, I guess, uh, I guess to close out this episode of the Squiggly Podcast, I have an announcement. Uh, something that uh, is actually probably one of the least kept secrets of all the kind of things that have been on the boil. But I wanted to wait a little while to announce it on the Squiggly podcast because I have uh, I now know it will be a, a squiggly thing. It always kind of was in spirit, but now it sort of officially will be. As I think quite a few people who listen to this know, Squiggly began its existence as a print-based magazine. It's existed as a uh, online magazine for quite some time now, and I think we're going to start making our first steps back into the world of print down the line. Firstly, we have the very first Squiggly book, which uh, I spent the last few years writing. It's coming up through CRC, which used to be Focal Press. Some of my absolute favorite books on the craft of animation and how to learn animation, this publisher would keep cropping up. So I always kind of kept them in mind. Because I think for me, a big part of the involvement with Squiggly was kind of leading to this, certainly in terms of my main kind of area of enthusiasm, which is independent animation, which is the name of the book. Ah. Basically, it's a cultural study slash uh, instructional informational book. It's about the culture of independent animation and what it is now, which is not as easily definable as one might think. We've had quite long conversations on this podcast about it. And so it's sort of a canvassing of, firstly, what independent animation is, secondly, where it's going, and how prospective independent animators, or people who are independent animators and want to continue, go about it. Because we live in this age now where, you know, we can just make our films if we really want to, if we really have conviction, if we really have our own resourcefulness. There are still options available to some to go about making a film the traditional way, like, you know, securing funding and that kind of thing. Not so much in the UK as far as, you know, available government funds. That's uh, that's pretty sparse right now, but you never know when things will, will change. So this is an international cross-section. It's a um, look at what I feel are the real, like, game changers in the world of independent animation. There have been It's a huge number of contributors, which I'm eternally grateful for, people who have absolutely inspired me over the years, people who I hope will inspire you. Looking into their working processes, and uh, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned about how to go about one's own independent or auteur projects, which uh, to me is really what it's all about. If you have an idea for a film and how you get that idea out into the world and make it the best version of that idea that you can. So I'm interested in, is it more of a book about how to make your own animated short films, independent animated short films, or is it more a book about the culture of animated short films? Well, I would say that uh, to the best of my ability, I've tried to make it both. I would say that it certainly has more of a focus on contemporary independent animation. So obviously more sort of classical stuff would be referenced, uh, Lottie Reiniger and stuff like that. Technically, you could consider that independent animation. But as far as its 
applicability to modern day processors and that kind of thing. The focus is more on leading independent animators within the last decade or couple of decades. People who have kind of embraced the digital revolution in a lot of respects. And just the complete diversity and and range of animation processes that uh, independent animation can allow for. So, for example, you know, of the films that have kind of done the rounds and really wowed festival audiences. On one hand, you have stuff that's financed by, you know, local government, is really, really high production values, really, you know, elaborate, but still technically within, you know, the parameters of what independent animation can be classified as. And then on another end of the spectrum, you have people who've, you know, made films with the literally the trackpad of their laptop. Like, not even with a tablet, but, you know, one guy just made a film, like, just rubbing his finger on the trackpad. And it won tons of awards, and it made his name. One film was kind of a uh, cross-country collaboration film, uh, uniting a whole bunch of animators in Canada. One sort of wonderful example, one animator is doing his animation on the back of a pig. Because <laughs> he's actually retired from animation, he lives on a farm now. Uh, that, to me, kind of, as I was putting this together, really kind of demonstrated, while there is so much that can be done and so many ways to do it and really not many excuses to not if you really have that fire in you and i think that it's it's been reflected i think a lot in what we do on squiggly and what we do on the podcast this episode was obviously focused on a mainstream feature which we are always happy to do but of course you know if you go through the podcast plenty of them are about our love for people who operate independently, people who are artistically driven to their own remit, not the remit of a big studio. Well, it doesn't matter really, does it? So long as you're an animator, you know, we'll have you. We love you. Yeah. So for me, this has been a real passion project. I'm very excited about it. I hope that it's uh, something that people will get a kick out of. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, getting hold of a couple myself, Ben. Uh, When is it out? It's coming out in late September. You can pre-order it now. It's available through the usual outlets where one might pre-order books, or you could go directly to crcpress.com, look for Independent Animation by my good self, Ben Mitchell, and uh, hopefully it will be the first sort of chapter of the next stage of Squiggly. Of course, Squiggly is this constantly evolving entity, and we all have lots of ideas for what it can be and what it can represent, and I think that the binding thing is the love for the craft, you know, that is so far extended, not just to a website, but to events, to community meetups, to things that kind of uh, bring people together, whether it be through Twitter or in person or through literature or things like that. So as the release date approaches, we'll be talking a little bit more about it. It'll be integrated into the website itself um, as a sort of companion website. I feel like it could be something quite big within what we do. Well, obviously, the last podcast, we talked an awful lot about Brexit, and we talked about the effects of TV animation and feature film animation. But (laughs) we got an email from a friend of ours saying, well, it doesn't really matter. Brexit doesn't affect independent animators because they never really got paid anyway. They never got any money, so it makes no difference to them. (laughs) You want to hear something funny slash depressing? I got an email today from a a North American festival saying... uh, by the way, we, we want as many of our international officially selected filmmakers to uh, to come here in person. So make sure to check with your government's organization that handles, you know, filmmaker traveling costs. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is, you know, 
there were, there was something set up like that, but the uh, the festival list was not a very long one, unfortunately. But you know, it's the other thing about independent spirit is uh, just as the you know the lack of a budget can determine how creative and resourceful the right sort of filmmaker mentality uh, is when they approach their film. That can also come into play with distribution and getting films seen. That's also a part of the book is, you know, what you then do once the film is done. It's not just about the film sort of coming together. But like you say, I hope that it will have some interest and appeal to people who maybe aren't about to make a film of their own, but appreciate the culture of independent animation. It's my love letter, I think, to that area of animation. You know, love letter slash thank you letter to an industry that's been very interesting and very insightful and very inspirational. So yeah, we'll keep you informed as the release date for that comes. Uh, So yes, independent animation, the full title, independent animation, developing, producing, and distributing your animated films. So thank you everyone for uh, sticking with us. Another episode of the Squiggly Podcast. Thanks also, of course, to Wesley Allard, who uh, chatted with us and took the time to interview Michael and Laurie, the team behind Ice Age Collision Course, out very soon in the UK. Check it out. You can follow Wes on Twitter at Wes Allard. That's Wes with a Z. And you can also follow Mike Thurmeyer, the director, at M Thurmeyer. That's uh, M-T-H-U-R-M-E-I-E-R. If you want to keep up to speed with him, you can follow myself at Ben L. Mitchell. And Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. And Squiggly, as always, is at Squiggly and squiggly.com for all the news and reviews and features and interviews and all the good stuff that we love to bring you. The uh, Manchester Animation Festival is still accepting entries for its short film competition, its student film competition and its commissioned film competition. So you can enter for free at manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk and don't forget, if you're entering a commissioned film, you can also enter it for our Industry Excellence Award, a brand new award which covers script writing, storyboarding and character animation. So if you are a scriptwriter, a storyboarder or a character animator, enter for free there. It's about time we started shining a little bit of light on those guys that are working on the commission stuff and this is the perfect opportunity for that. And you can enter again for free over at manchesteranimationfestival.com co.uk the deadline is the 29th of july and throughout the rest of this month if you happen to be in germany and are in the mood for a night of short film fun then interfilms shorts attack may be playing in a city near you the july program travel stories which features my latest film clemen throw will be all over the country until the end of the month with stops at hamburg dresden leipzig munster nuremberg and many more visit shortsattack.com for a full list of upcoming dates, times, and venues. And while you're online, you may want to swing by Squiggly itself for our latest coverage. There's more from Wes and his Ice Age Annecy reportage. A look at the McLaren Award contenders at this year's Edinburgh Film Festival. A roundup of some recent BBC animation projects put together with the Bristol School of Animation. Plus an interview with Under the Apple Tree director Eric Van Schaik, which is great fun. Once again, that's squiggly.com, and track us down at facebook.com slash squigglymagazine. Not to mention, you can follow us on Instagram, we're squigglyanimation. And thanks as always for joining us, and until next time, happy animating.